Welcome to the Chris Wallace Chronicles. All right, you don't know who that is. Okay. He lives in Australia now, but he lived in Hollywood before Australia and New York before Hollywood. You know, the actor, the songwriter. He was at ringside for the first Ali Frazier fight, Liza Minnelli's date one night. He used to smoke weed with Morgan Freeman. Likes to tell stories, like this one. I've got two stories about New York Illustrated. New York Illustrated was a documentary series that Channel 4 produced about things that happened in the tri-state area. They could be about anything. I was still doing on-air promotion for Channel 4. New York Illustrated decided to do a program titled Hollywood on the Hudson about the film industry in New York. Millions of feet of film were shot in New York every year. The program claimed it was even more than Hollywood. Some of it had to be when Hollywood series came to shoot on location but the bulk was TV commercials. Madison Avenue was, after all, one block east of Fifth Avenue. So with this in mind, Channel 4 wanted to brag a little about New York's contribution to the film industry, thus Hollywood on the Hudson. I just had to be around as much of that as possible. I used research as my excuse. One day they'd be in Central Park with Nat Hentoff, the legendary New York journalist and critic. Another day it would be Woody Allen. I made sure the still photographer got shots of me with all of them. Couldn't help myself. I later figured out why. This is after I became an actor. My conclusion was that we all need validation. Being in a photo with someone we believe to be somebody, by proximity, makes us somebody too. People, right? Hollywood on the Hudson was hosted by Douglas Fairbanks Jr. He had a Hollywood career mostly because of his father. Douglas Fairbanks Sr. had been one of the biggest silent film stars in the world. He, America's sweetheart Mary Pickford, and Charlie Chaplin formed United Artists, a Hollywood institution. Doug Jr. was urbane, suave, charming, and had an almost impossible time managing to read cue cards. If he'd worn his glasses, it would have been easier, but the lenses were about three inches thick. Not a good look for a matinee idol. I went along when they shot at the Biograph Studios in the Bronx. This was the studio where the original silent film stars and the famous director D.W. Griffith all got started. Our first stop was on Central Park West to pick up Blanche Sweet. You'd have to be a film buff or maybe even a historian to know who she was, but she was A-list in her time. Now she was in her 80s, but she was one of the spunkiest women you'll ever come across. She bounced out of her apartment and into the car. As soon as the door closed, she started chattering away. I haven't been out at the studio in years and years, she said. I wonder if I remember anything. I wonder if it's changed. Golly, this is exciting for an old lady. She had worked with Mr. Griffith, as she called him, Mary Pickford, the Gish sisters, and a whole lot of others back in the day. When we arrived at Biograph, she stopped before she went through the door. I've never done anything like this before, she said. I don't know how this is going to go. Douglas Fairbanks Jr. was already there and greeted her warmly as they were introduced. You'd think they'd have met before, but they hadn't. I was with Blanche Sweet when she strolled through the studio, remembering. You know, she said, Mr. Griffith had been an actor before he became a director here in 1908. Funny, but in those days, directors were not as important as they are today. They were more like traffic cops. The cameramen were the important ones. Then she led us into this small screening room. Oh, my goodness, she said. This is where, 
One morning I came to work and Mr. Griffith grabbed me and brought me into this screening room. He said he wanted to show me something. And the lights went down and we were sitting there and onto the screen came Mary. Pickford? Yes, she said, Mary Pickford. We were both working here then. It was a full shot of her, the way most of them were in those days. Now watch, Mr. Griffith said. And the camera moved closer and closer and closer until Mary's face filled the entire screen. It was magical. I asked Mr. Griffith how he did that, and he told me that Billy Bitzer, the cameraman, had picked up the camera and very carefully and slowly moved toward Mary, adjusting the focus as he went. This was the first zoom to a close-up that anyone had ever done. She was seeing it again in her mind's eye. Then she broke the spell. And you know the damnedest thing about it? All I could think was, why wasn't I in to work yesterday? That would have been my face up there. Isn't that terrible? I mean, it was history, and all I could think to do was be jealous of Mary. Then she laughed. Actors. Another day, they shot at Thomas Edison's Invention Factory in New Jersey. Just being there made you want to think up something. There were half-finished experiments on various tables, papers and notes on his desk, all dusted clean, exactly the way he left it. And in a little niche was a cot where he slept a few hours every so often so it could keep working around the clock. Then we went into the Black Mariah, Edison's film studio. You are not going to believe what one of the first films to screen there was. I'll set the scene for you. Old Alva and his cigar-smoking buddies are sitting in the Black Mariah, sipping whiskey and elbowing each other in the ribs while this stripper dances across the screen naked. I didn't make that up. I saw it. Strange thing, though, that film didn't make it into New York Illustrated. Hmm. Hollywood on the Hudson turned out to be a huge success. I don't know if all my research had anything to do with it or not. Probably not. The other New York Illustrated story needs a little background. I took a small role in a musical version of Twelfth Night that a friend at NBC was directing. Lynn, one of the women in the cast, and I stayed friends afterward. She called me one day to see if I'd like to join her and her friend Joyce when they went to Valley Forge Veterans Hospital. Brian, a guy they'd grown up with, was a Vietnam vet rehabilitating at Valley Forge and waiting for a new arm and leg. They had been visiting him regularly, got to know some of the other guys, and decided to put on a little show for them. I was all in. The guy I worked with at NBC had a side gig as a joke writer. I asked him if he'd like to join us and be our MC. So Joyce, Lynn, Cal, and I drove down to Valley Forge one Saturday. Most of the guys there were amputees. They were there to receive prosthetics, learn how to use them, and be rehabilitated. I'll be honest, I was one of the people who was entirely against the Vietnam War. But these guys were just guys. It's not like they had any choice or wanted to be there either. But they'd gone, and now they were back, minus a few parts. You'd have to be stone-cold heartless not to want to do something for them. So Cal told some jokes. Joyce and Lynn sang and danced in skimpy little costumes, and I sang a couple of my novelty numbers. But the truth is that if Joyce and Lynn just stood there, the show would have been a success. These guys were the best audience I'd ever performed for. It was like a mini USO tour. After the show, we all went to Brian's ward to say hello in person. He was a really nice guy. Would have been about 6'1 if he could stand up. 
He thanked us and told us it meant a lot to the guys to have someone care enough to come and entertain them. Then he said, come on, let's go see some of the other guys. And he led us through the ward and introduced us. Joyce and Lynn were still in their costumes and flirted outrageously. The guys lapped it up. As we were leaving, one of the guys yelled, Hey, when are you coming back? Without skipping a beat, Lynn said, We'll be back with a bigger show, more girls. On the way back to New York, we started putting our heads together for a return trip. Joyce had a friend named Sean who worked at one of the big ad agencies. She said he'd be terrific at putting a big show together. Cal had some other gag writers who would contribute material. Lynn said she could get some more girls. And I said I might be able to get a few musicians to put a band together. By the time we got back to New York, we were already in gear. Nobody said no to us. Sean couldn't wait to do his version of the Ziegfeld Follies. The first musician I called had a six-piece band together by that afternoon, complete with a terrific singer. Lynn had to beat girls off with a stick. It was great. Cal and I were sitting in our office at NBC, and he said, you ought to get New York Illustrated to do a show about this. After Hollywood on the Hudson, I had developed a relationship with the executive producer. I used to pop into his office all the time to schmooze. He was puffing on his pipe when I walked in a few minutes later. What's up, he asked. Boy, do I have a show for you. I told him what we'd done and what we wanted to do and let him take it from there. He puffed his pipe, looked up, and said, That sounds interesting. Leave it with me. At rehearsals, we watched Sean morph into Flo Ziegfeld. All the numbers he picked were showstoppers. Let us entertain you from Gypsy. Hey, Big Spender from Sweet Charity. You can't get a man with a gun from Annie Get Your Gun. Whatever Lola wants from Damn Yankees. And A Pretty Girl is Like a Melody from the actual Ziegfeld Follies, complete with a parade of outrageous, spangled, and aluminum foil wings and hearts and headdresses, all made by the cast. The girls wore fatigues or tights and leotards, depending on the number. The guys had to be in tuxedos. We ended up with a cast of 26 people, only a few of whom were professional entertainers. One was a juvenile probation officer, a few were students, a couple were secretaries, there was a bookkeeper and an architect and a piano teacher, and one high school kid. Nobody asked anybody's view on the Vietnam War. It was never discussed. We were all just friends or friends of friends who wanted to do something for these guys, and Sean's Follies was our vehicle. He even got his agency to spring for all the props and a bus to take us to Valley Forge Hospital. New York Illustrated was on board, too. This was turning into a multimedia production. Now, I've got to interrupt for a second because something happened that absolutely blew my mind. I don't know if you've ever experienced anything like this or not. If you have, you'll relate. If not, well, if you ever do, you'll freak out, too. Anyway, the bus was going to pick us up in front of 666 Fifth Avenue. It was the Tishman building then. I got there a little earlier than the rest and was walking around in the entryway of the building, well back from the sidewalk. I heard Joyce say, what the hell is Chris doing? I walked out to the sidewalk and saw that the bus was there. The driver was standing by the door. My jaw hit the concrete. This guy looked just like me. I even saw it. Same size, same coloring, same hair, same face, except his nose was slightly hooked. Otherwise, we could have been twins. If one of us got a nose job, we'd have been identical twins. We just looked at each other. 
He said, oh my God. I said, I'll be damned. My next thought was, I hope he never murders anyone. I'll be in prison for life. When we got to Valley Forge, there was a moment when I was on stage looking back toward the door. In a nanosecond, my brain said, oh, that guy looks familiar. I know him. Oh, yeah, it's me. No, it can't be me. I'm here. It was the driver carrying in some props. We did two shows. One was an abbreviated version that we took to the wards in the afternoon for the guys who couldn't come to the auditorium that night. The big show ran for almost two hours. Guys were there in wheelchairs, on crutches, missing eyes and legs and arms, and howling with delight. The band rocked. The singer sang a ballad that made us all cry. Cal's jokes were deadly. I got big laughs with my songs. We had a chorus line of ten high-kicking women that would have put the Rockettes to shame. It was a smash. Sean Ziegfeld was dancing with joy. Nobody wanted it to end. If Variety had been there, they'd have said it was Sacco Bafo all the way. After the show, we talked with some of the guys. One guy asked one of the girls how much we got paid to come here. She said nothing. He said nobody got paid anything? She said, no, we did it because we wanted to. He said, I've been here six months, and no one has ever done anything like this for us before. Just looking into their faces, knowing they'd forgotten for a moment, made it all worthwhile. That's what we were there for. Money couldn't have bought the love and joy it spread through all of us. Sometimes you just get things right. This was one of those times. New York Illustrated got it all. When I watched it on the air, it was thrilling. Except for the ending, which I thought was a little cheesy. The director had Lynn and me sitting in the back of the bus together on the way home. He asked me to serenade her. Lynn and I were never any kind of an item. We were pals. But she was gorgeous, and the director wanted the schmaltz. So I hauled out my uke and sang one of my songs. She had her head resting on my shoulder like she was asleep, like the terrific actor she was. I strummed away and sang my heart out trying to match her. It was the only thing that whole day that wasn't genuine and spontaneous. My pipe-smoking buddy at New York Illustrated loved it. Therefore, it stayed. And that's show business. I'm Chris Wallace.